This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a new way of testing and treating people who've just had a stroke, which could save a lot of disability. The huge payoffs if we were to invest more in the first thousand days of life. And a newly implemented system of monitoring the prescriptions of potentially dangerous drugs. It's uncovered over 27,000 people at risk of harm, just in April and just in Victoria. And the rollout is far from complete. So that's an underestimate of the real extent of the problem. The problem is potential overconsumption through doctor and pharmacy shopping and dangerous combinations of medications. The system is called SafeScript, and Matthew McCrone from the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services is in charge of implementing it. Welcome to the Health Report, Matthew. Thanks very much, Norman. So what drugs are we talking about? Um, if I can give a bit of a backstory to how we came to the drugs. We love that's important. <laughs> so we commissioned a review from Austin Health um, and they looked at uh, four different sets of data. They looked at coronial data, of course, but they also looked at um, uh, paramedic data, um, data from the poisons information centres across Australia and inpatient data as well. From that, they synthesised a list of the, most, of the medicines causing most harm. We have harm a, being harm being well a number of different things, but death obviously from the coronial report. But just the fact that um, particular medicines were were, were present um, with paramedic callouts, um, also within the poisons information centre, people who were calling up with um, you know adverse effects from from whichever medicine. Um, but from that list that synthesised list, we took that then to our expert advisory group, which gave us their recommendations about which needed to be in and which didn't. We knew it was important that the evidence base was behind that. So the ones that are in are all the prescription opiates, and that includes combination um, analgesics with codeine, which is a fair... No one, of, no one prescription rather than over-the-counter. That, that's right, because... Um, Indeed, codeine is no longer available over the counter. But the prescription opiates, all benzodiazepines. So just stick with the opiates for a moment. So yep. that's uh, oxycodone, yes. uh, endone it's called, yep. and uh, fentanyl, and you know, the sort of problems that you're seeing at a massive proportions in the United States, but n not insignificant proportions here. That's right. The slow-release oxycodone as well, a um, number of different brands of that. Um, slow-release oral morphine, um, what else have we got? Uh, fentanyl, as you mentioned. Um, any of the prescription opiates that are, um, you know, classified as Schedule Eight. So moving on from those, also all benzodiazepines, um, uh, diazepam, alprazolam. You'd know brand names like Xanax and Valium. Um, also cousins of the benzodiazepines, which are called uh, Z-class drugs, they're for sleeping, uh, Zopiclone and Zolpidem. What are the brand names of those, just that we recognise uh, them? You're, you're, tricky, you're pressing me I'm trying now. to remember Zolpidem. Is it Xanax? Z uh, no. Um, God. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Try and, well, try and guess live on air. It's not really a good <laughs> idea. But, anyway, but they are common ones prescribed. They are indeed. Um, and finally, one... one a uh, single uh, atypical antipsychotic is also included, uh, quetiapin, and that's brand brand name is Seroquel. So that's used, unfortunately, too much with people with dementia, but it's also used to treat psychosis and other situations. That's right, a fair bit of off-label prescribing as well. So what's the purpose? How does Safe Scripts work? Or Safe Script work, I should say. At its core, it is 
um, an IT system, a database. So every time a prescription is dispensed, um, that information is then into SafeScript so that each time a doctor uh, goes to prescribe or a pharmacist goes to dispense, that that information is available to them at that point of decision on whether they wish to prescribe or wish th- whether they wish to dispense. Um, the technology is important though because we got very clear, strong message from our advisory group right from the get-go that that needed to be an, as seamless a process as it possibly could be. Um, so the technology that we've developed, um, the most uh, seamless interface, and that is with the majority of the clinical systems out there in primary care settings, um, is so it, one So it goes onto the doctor's computer and the pharmacist's computer. That's right. That's and the right. systems that they... Um, the systems that they use is called medical director or, or practice, best practice. Or best practice. Or and then there's a million, there's about nine of them in pharmacies that they That's use. That's right. That's so, right. So, so, they, so they go in, so you're prescribed, so they prescribe from the, let's say the doctor prescribes from his or her computer program, medical right. director or what have yep. you, and they're going to prescribe Endone. That's right. Um, so what, the minute they've typed in the drug, that system, their system knows that that is a monitored medicine. So there's then two-way messaging between their clinical system and SafeScript, and they will get a push-out notification. So they're not needing to go to a separate system. They're not needing to do a separate login. And what's they the notification actually, they get? Mrs. Jones, you're the third GP that Mrs. Jones has gone to for Endone? We use a traffic light system. So if there's nothing in the database at all, they'll get a green notification. Um, if there is... Uh, some uh, records there, but nothing too um, risky. They will get an amber notification. And then there are a, a number of circumstances, which I can describe, which will trigger a red alert. And with that red alert, that is um, what is deemed a high risk um, circumstance. And they need to go to SafeScript and look at the full database records for that patient before they proceed. And that could be that they've been doctor shopping or that somebody else might have prescribed another drug which could interact with this one. So, so, so it might be quite benign in a sense. They might not be doctor shopping, but they might inadvertently be getting another script for something that might react with the other drug. Norman, I'll just say one thing, if I can quickly, while you're, you're saying that. We, we're fairly conscious of the use of language, which might be stigmatising to patients. Sure. So we try to avoid the term doctor shopping. We talk about multiple provider episodes. So one of the th- circumstances that will trigger a red alert is if they have seen more than five prescribers in the last 90 days. Um, so that's one. Another one is it also runs rules around uh, morphine equivalents if they're on more than one different opiate, and it will calculate the daily dose of morphine equivalents for that patient. And if it's above 100 milligrams of morphine equivalents, which is well, which was what uh, the Hunter New England guideline said was the maximum safe dose, um, then that will trigger a red alert. It will also trigger a red alert with certain combinations um, such as fentanyl and methadone. Now, this is going to be compulsory next year, but so far you've got, you, you've got limited penetration in both pharmacy and general practice. What, about one in four GPs in, in Victoria so far? Um, so we sent out an email to all uh, registered uh, medical practitioners and pharmacists who listed Victoria as their primary place of practice um, in at the start of April. So that was around 36,000 practitioners. Um, and that's the number who are registered with APRA. So that may or may not be the number who are actively in clinical practice, but that's the number we're going on. And um, 
Around about 11,000 of those have to date um, registered to use SafeScript. So, yeah, you're, do, you're right. How do you manage privacy here? Because people might say, well, what business is it of people knowing whether I've um, you know, got another couple of prescriptions? It's my business, not yours. It's an issue that we are very, very conscious of. So right from the get-go, the way the system was developed was um, using privacy by design uh, process. Um, the technology is such that, so it's the technology first, the technology is is encrypted at rest. So um, so nobody outside, so in other words, you're working within, the, within a privacy circle of health professionals it who in a sense only, have a right to know for the safety of the patient. That's right, for the safety of the patient, in ter- for them to determine whether it is safe to prescribe or dispense that medicine, they are able to see that. So we also use multifactorial authentication in order for them to log on at the start so, of the day. Just finally, because we're running out of time. Yep. Um, so what are you supposed to do? A pharmacist finds you've got a problem or a GP finds there's a problem and people look yeah. as if they may have an issue with opiates. Are they trained to do, know, do, they, do they know what to do next? That, that what, what happens next is the critical fact. And that is why, as part of the implementation, we have rolled out statewide training. And it is to uh, refresh those important clinical skills about what is a safe dose, how to prescribe safely, how to de-prescribe, to titrate a dose down if necessary, and how to take someone off an opiate. Well, and um, how to manage pain properly, presumably. How to manage pain outside of... Um, these, I mean, a lot of these people are, are uh, actually in pain and they're desperate for some effective relief. Indeed. So all of those clinical skills are freshened, but there is another module which I want to plug, which is just as important, which is the soft skills, how to have that difficult conversation with a patient. You know, if you've got a patient and all of a sudden you are aware from what SafeScript's telling you that they may have substance use disorder, how do you engage with that patient and actually have the conversation to say, well, maybe we're not going to prescribe that medicine today. Maybe we're going to have a different conversation about your about your health and how we manage that. And well. very, very briefly, is there going to be a national rollout of this? We hope so. Uh, we are pressing for that. Certainly the Commonwealth has engaged the software vendor that developed the system for us. So it will be available, um, the same functionality and technology as what we have delivered here in Victoria. And we just implore all the other states to come on board. And there is a helpline and uh, that'll be on, our, on the Health Reports website. Matthew McCrone, Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating. Thanks, Norman. Matthew McCrone is in the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services. And you're in the Health Report here on RN. I'm Norman Swan. Well over 50,000 Australians have a stroke each year. That's one person suffering a stroke every nine minutes. There are nearly half a million people living with disabilities from their stroke, and that number grows each year. Many are of working age. The treatment of stroke has been revolutionised over the last decade or so with campaigns like FAST encouraging the recognition of the signs of a stroke and calling an ambulance immediately to get to hospital to have the clot blocking the brain dissolved. That's called thrombolysis and the time window to effective clot busting has been four and a half hours. FAST, by the way, stands for face, arms, speech and time. Does your face droop? Can you hold both arms out in front of you equally? Is your speech slurred or absent? And time is of the essence. But some people can't get to hospital within four and a half hours, and others, scarily, wake up with a stroke with no idea when during the night it actually occurred. Well, there's great news from an Australian trial published last week in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. And it's that some people can be saved from disability if given thrombolysis up to nine hours later. Stephen Davis was one of the investigators. Stephen is director of the Melbourne Brain Centre at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Welcome to the health report, Stephen. 
Thanks, Norman. We might need to turn on your microphone. What's the current percentage of people treated within four and a half hours? Yeah, in Australia, we're treating 13%. Um, in the best hospital centres, it's close to 20%. We think we can increase that by half again. So we can probably add on 6 or 7% additional patients. So that's pretty exciting. Through this, through this particular research? That's right. And the main difference is that Rather than using a time clock alone and just using an ordinary CT scan to rule out hemorrhage, we're using a perfusion CT scan That's that can measure the brain at risk and okay. therefore select patients. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, talk to me about this, this, this situation where somebody wakes with a stroke. How common is it? And what, just describe what happens. It's very common. Um, in fact, uh, it, it's about 20% of patients. And often, you know, when I do ward rounds and stroke, uh, we often start in the emergency department first thing because you know that some people will come in first thing in the morning when they wake up. So someone wakes up with a paralysed limb or, or slurred speech. You don't know when it's come on during the night. And they usually have not been able to access thrombolytic therapy, TPA, because they went to bed more than four and a half hours ago. So it's been refused? Now, we just don't know when the stroke came on, so they're outside the window, so they're outside the guidelines. But this new research shows that doing a perfusion CT scan, which is available in most Australian stroke centres, we can pick those that will benefit. And this trial showed that those patients have a 44% increased chance of having an excellent outcome. So how does it work at present? Somebody comes in with a stroke and it's with new time it and it's within four and a half hours. Tell me the process because, you know, if you've got a heart attack, you come in and they do an ECG and they do your bloods to check that you've got uh, a heart attack and then whoop, you're in and you're having a catheter done and so on. We'll hold back on what you do at the Royal Melbourne and other advanced sure. hospitals in Australia, which is actually beyond thrombolysis because I think that's, we need to get to that at the end. But how does it work for thrombolysis at the moment? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It basically involves, obviously, assessing the patient, but a CT scan to rule out bleeding in the brain because the symptoms of a brain hemorrhage are very similar to those of a blocked artery. And then once you've ruled out bleeding, uh, pretty much if the patient's clinically eligible, we treat and we say time is brain, treat as quickly as possible. But CT scanning, which has been around since the 70s, has now evolved and there's much better techniques so we can measure the amount of brain that's dead and the amount of brain that's at risk, what we call the ischemic penumbra. So we can do this in so about five minutes. So it's like a halo minutes. around the actual stroke. Yeah, exactly. It's like the white around the yolk of an egg or a halo, as you say. And when we see that picture, we can actually measure it with automated imaging and we can tell if that's a good responder to TPA at this late time window. And so the more of a, a halo you've got, the better your chances of, of responding. Is that it crudely? That's absolutely correct. And if you've got a big halo and a small core, hours after the stroke, you're probably what we call a slow progressor. You've probably got good collateral blood vessels or other blood vessels that are keeping that brain alive. But unless you're reperfused, unless that blood flow can be restored, you're still at risk of very nasty disability. And what predicts a slow a slow progressor from a fast predictor? That's a very good question, and we're still trying to work that out. But the, the, I guess the basic thing is if you see someone at a late time window and they've still got 
a lot of penumbra. They've still got a lot of that halo. They are, by definition, a slow progressor. The ones that come in at two or three hours and got a massive infarct core and very little penumbra, um, there are still, unfortunately, those patients, and we, we will still treat early on, but we anticipate a bad outcome. So tell us about the trial. Well, the trial was, was started in Australia um, and then involved New Zealand, Taiwan, that put in quite a lot of patients, and Finland, and it randomised patients who had this penumbra, this halo, as you put it. Half of them got TPA and half got uh, matching placebo. And of course, it's double-blinded. We didn't know which treatments were allocated. And at the end of the trial, the code's broken. And those that received the TPA did substantially better. Does that mean living or surviving or surviving with less disability or no disability? No, good question. So we didn't show reduced mortality and no thrombolytic trial has shown reduced mortality, but we showed much less disability. So the main thing people are concerned about with stroke is you want a treatment that obviously doesn't worsen your mortality, but the main, main thing is people want to get back to a functional life, to work, to at least live at home independently. And the worst thing that people don't want is a nursing home outcome. So um, that's what this reperfusion therapy in stroke does, both thrombolysis, which we're talking about this evening, and of course, what we call clot retrieval or thrombectomy, where there's a very dramatic improvement in, in uh, quality of life with reduced disability by literally pulling the clots out of the arteries. So do you think this applies to thrombectomy as well? It does. Uh, there have been two trials now of late time windows with thrombectomy. So the old time window for thrombectomy, if it, it's really changing rapidly, Norman. This field is, is incredibly dynamic. So about three years ago, two years ago, the time window was six hours for thrombectomy. We used to say six hours from onset of a blocked large artery to the groin, to the puncture in the groin. Um, and uh, now we're treating patients up to 24 hours based on these hours. trials. 24. And patients are selected with exactly these same techniques that we used for intravenous TPA. And of course, intravenous TPA can treat many more patients than thrombectomy. And I presumably this helps people who live distant from major centres, because it's only major centres that do thrombectomy these days, to get to there on time that if you you have, can have thrombolysis on the way, presumably. Exactly right. And, and that's what we call drip and ship patients. So um, we want patients, for example, in Mildura or some other remote centre to get uh, a CT perfusion to show that they've got this penumbra. And presumably this is a in. standard CT that you can do in any ED, emergency department. In most EDs, the stroke centres have CT perfusion. Most of them have the automated imaging, packages for automated imaging, so it kind of takes the guesswork out and you're told how big the infarct core is, whether they've got this salvageable brain tissue, and then you can start treatment um, if they come in at the late time window while they're being transferred. And so what treatment started. And what was the risk of bleeds? Because you don't yep. get thrombolysis for free. You don't. So the risk of bleeds was uh, not tiny. It's about 6% of patients have bleeds. Can you predict but, who? Yeah, we know that people with larger cores um, uh, with worse strokes tend to be more at risk of bleeds. But the, the important thing in the results of the trials is that this didn't translate into worse outcomes or higher mortality. So the, in other words, the benefits considerably offset the risks. The risks are, are not trivial and they're always discussed with patients and family, but they are in fact no greater than in all of the thrombolytic trials.
And just to be clear here, you're talking about overall the risks versus benefits. I mean, if somebody has a bleed, they're presumably worse off or not necessarily? Yeah, if, if it's a, what we call a symptomatic bleed, they are worse off, but it's greatly offset by the benefits of reperfusing, getting the blood flow back into the brain. So overall, it's a, it's a very positive result. We still say time is brain, very importantly, but the concept of a time barrier alone has really been broken. So a change of practice on the way. I believe so, yeah. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Professor Stephen Davis is Director of the Melbourne Brain Centre at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. A major report is just out which makes the case for investment in the first thousand days of life. That's from conception to age two. Led by a collaboration brought together by ARACI, the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth, the paper builds on a previous analysis from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which showed the critical importance of the early years for a child's future, and we covered that story at the time on the Health Report. And I need to declare here that I sit on the board of ARACI, but had no involvement in the report, which was written by PwC, a consulting company, backed by a working group, which also included the Murdoch and funding from the Bupa Health Foundation. This analysis selected two factors which illustrate the power of government investment to influence large numbers of children's lives. Professor Sharon Goldfeld is a community paediatrician and public health researcher at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome to the Health Report, Sharon. Thank you, Norman. So let's just re we go back a bit. Why pick the first thousand days? Because that's really, because people are talking now about the first 2,000 days, so you get a bit confused. Let's reprise some of the findings of that first study that uh, MCRI led. Thank you. And it's an interesting segue from the previous um, speaker around uh, time is brain, because I think that's kind of where the first thousand days started its journey, which was looking at the importance of brain uh, development around the first thousand days and really increasing research internationally that tells us that those first thousand days really set children on the sort of trajectory that either ends up with a poor adult outcome or a better adult outcome, with the caveat, of course, that it's not all over by the first thousand days. But more and more, we're finding out that those first thousand days tell us something about how a child will do at school, about their social emotional outcomes, and about how the environments that they grow up in are likely to influence them well into their adult futures. Now, Fiona Stanley and others have shown that there's a myriad of influences on those, on at least the preconception time, or the prenatal time, I should say. Um, um, from viral infections through to maybe even transmitted d disadvantage, um, nutrition, smoking, alcohol and so on. You zeroed in on two in this report. That's right. And uh, partly pragmatics and partly very thoughtful. So the reason of thinking about the antenatal period are for all the reasons you've just talked about. But antenatal smoking is measured and we know that antenatal smoking is bad for kids. And I probably don't need to tell you that. It's bad for the woman, but it's also really bad for kids. And it translates into adverse outcomes around learning outcomes, obesity, which is what we see in the return on investment, and then future earning status, which is also what we've seen in this report. So really? Honing in, yeah. So future earning status as well, presumably from the disadvantage that the Correct. And the learning learning um, disadvantage. So does that, that all sheet back to low birth weight? Um, it's probably not as linear as that. And I think that's the sort of work that's being done now. But certainly there are strong associations there. So it'll be partly about low birth weight, partly about direct brain impact of the smoke itself, um, and partly about the disadvantage that goes along with it. What percentage so of, 
Australian women smoke during pregnancy? So it's about 10% of women still smoke. There's a strong social gradient that won't surprise you. So that means that more disadvantaged women or the, there are higher proportions of disadvantaged women, women who are smoking up to the 15 to 20%. And we're seeing the correlated low birth weight, as you say, in exactly the same way. How many babies does that translate to? Um, well, there's about 250,000 births a year in Australia. So, so 2,500. So I think, yeah, I think the, the report says 31,000 was the, was the number with the, the babies affected. So when you actually then calculated, we'll come to the other factor in a moment, when you calculated the impact of a baby being born from a mother who's not smoking to a baby who's born smoking, how did it shake out in terms of, because you're really trying to appeal to the bean counters here, the economic impact? Yeah, this was the really interesting thing. So the overall potential annual benefit is about a billion dollars. Um, and the way that breaks down is around about $29,000 um, over the child's lifetime. And the return on that is, as I said, mainly in return to, well, there's a reduction in obesity because there's a relationship between obesity and smoking. About a third of it is because of better earnings and about 15% is because they're less likely to be a smoker as an adult. So when you do the economics, that's sort of how, how it falls out. And um, there's, there's, this actually mirrors a lot of research we're seeing about um, the negative impact of smoking in pregnancy. And home... And, and, and Sorry, just before we just tie that one off, and that assumes that all pregnant women do, don't smoke if you had that ideal circumstance. Correct. You, you got those benefits eventually of a billion dollars a year. Now, the other one was housing stability. Yes, this was a really interesting one. And this is moving, I guess, into the postnatal period, um, but also looking at the environments that children are going up are growing up in. And this is kind of the definition, really, of social determinants, the environments that are children growing up in. That includes their families, the homes they're growing up in, and the communities that they're growing up in. And so looking at housing stability allowed us to look at those environments that children are growing up in and having some sense of what that might do in terms of the impact on their later adult health and development and therefore um, the economics of that. And it's a bit of a proxy, I I guess, for how families are connected to each other and how families are connected to the communities they live in. And also parental stress. It's not great for a family to be moving all the time. Correct, correct. In fact, we, we know that there are a number of studies that have shown that. And there's, I'll just, I'll just share with you a really interesting study, which was called Moving to Opportunity, that showed um, if you actually take families and move them out of these kind of disadvantaged and somewhat chaotic communities where a number of these ho housing estates are and put them into better housing areas. In fact, if you do that before the age of 12, it makes a massive difference to child development, but not to the adults. So it's a really interesting story about the importance of the environments children are growing up in. Now, interestingly, you used rental accommodation and home ownership as proxies for this. Exactly. And that's the pragmatics of the data available. In fact, we had to use home ownership because of the lack of data. Really there's a lot of other things that go renting. along with home ownership. Doesn't that corrupt Correct. the findings? 
Um, I think a lot of that was really taken into account um, when they were able to do it because we actually did have some data on the actual families themselves. So it's not perfect, you're absolutely right, but it gives us a sense of the importance of children having and families having stable housing. And I guess a heads up that maybe we need to have some better data so we can do more of that work looking at rental as well. And I think uh, we're running out of time, but I think that we, you found an $84,000 a child benefit here and a three billion gain over a, over a period of a lifetime. So what are the policymakers to do with this? What are the solutions? Well, I think the solutions need to be multiple. I, th I think the days of silver bullets are kind of gone. And this idea of being able to think about, I'll, I'll quote James Heckman here, this idea of the continuity and complementarity of services. Now, James Heckman is a very famous Nobel Prize winning economist, but the idea that we can kind of ride in on our white horse and do one thing and nothing else, I think those days are gone. They kind of probably immunisation was our last great white horse, I think. And now it's really thinking about, okay, well, what can we do better in our antenatal care and how do we do better in early childhood education and care and how do we do better in schools and how do we better to target disadvantaged families from our universal platforms. And whilst that's complex, I think it's also incredibly um, incredible array of opportunities. Sharon, thank you. Pleasure. Professor Sharon Goldfeld is at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And we'll have that report on the Health Report's website. I'm Norman Swan. Do join us next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.